Welcome to Across the Aisle. I'm Adam. I'm Zach. And I'm Kason. Today we're going to be talking about capitalist realism. Not the satirical art movement making fun of socialist realism, but the theories put forward and related to Mark Fisher, the late Mark Fisher. But before we get into capitalist realism, I guess we have to really describe what is capitalism. Uh, in our little mini talk uh, last week that we put out, Kaysen and I talked a little bit about this, and uh, I asked you, Kaysen, what you thought capitalism was. If I asked you point blank, and you give me the answer of the associations you have with freedom and democracy, uh, the vision that capitalism would want you to put forward. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of associations there, and I understand that. We could probably spend a whole episode talking about just that. Uh, but I wanted to lay down a little more technical um, vision of what capitalism was, um, and I wanted to ask Zach to chime in and tell me, like, if I asked you, what is capitalism, um, if you could give a layman's definition to someone, because a lot of people seem not to know, even though we all live under the system. I essentially have two definitions of capitalism. I believe that capitalism is the traditional form of the bargain trade that we had thousands of years ago, and the first currency, from my understanding, either started in Egypt or Greece, and the other one stole it. And ever since coinage started to become a thing, when we started adding it, uh, in the Middle East, salt was a very big currency for a very, very long time. It still pretty much is. Um, you develop this convenience, and capitalism was built on this traditional idea of trying to make purchasing and trading and exchanging as simple and quick and convenient as possible. But I also believe that capitalism has changed so much since its proto-freight phases in the ancient world that we read about going into the Industrial Revolution. And we can get into that more, but to me, capitalism is the traditional exchange of something, whether it be gold or one item for another item or an actual fiat currency like we generally have in this world, whatever it is, its definition to me is to make exchange as convenient as possible for everybody. And that comes at prices, which we'll talk about later into this, but that to me is my most unbiased definition of it, getting rid of my personal economic ideas. Interesting. Yeah, um, I agree with that in a large sense. I would say there's a difference between proto-capitalism or like the early signs of capitalism. We've always, or we've had it for a very, very long time, capital. But I would say, yeah, capitalism, where it becomes the main driving force in society, uh, doesn't really start showing up until the Industrial Revolution. Like, you could argue mercantilism, where uh, the kings owned um, all these products and kind of sold them to other people to make, uh, like rugs and whatnot. Um, that's pretty close to capitalism, but still, even in mercantilism, the majority of people have nothing to do with that capital accumulation. Um, so for me, I wanted to define capitalism as 
as the economic system uh, it has a few characteristics, trademark characteristics such as private property, uh, private um, ownership of the means and modes of production, the factory owners and whatnot. Um, but it's a system that is designed to create a surplus in, to sell and to exchange. It doesn't produce for use, it produces commodities for market exchange. And that's the main mode of production. We produced commodities before, like I was saying, in Mercantilism or even in ancient Rome and Egypt and stuff. Things were being made, but that wasn't the main reason why you made things. It wasn't the point of your life to serve capital in this way. And I think that's a very interesting way to put it when you're thinking about it from a, from a, like a novice standpoint, which I, I'm probably least versed in economic uh, theory when it comes to you guys. But it's basically making items so that you can, or creating a service or making item, building something you can sell so you can use that money to do other things. It's almost like, in, in my opinion, an extra step. You know, why spend time building a bike so you can sell that bike so you take the money to go buy food? You know, it just seems like a roundabout way to do it. But uh, uh, when you think about it from that standpoint, um, that's kind of how capitalism works. To transition a little bit, though, you also have to realize that there is a bit of a cycle with those who do produce. Because what ends up happening is you get the capital to produce an item or a service, and then the capital you get from producing or selling that service or good then goes back to the factory or your people to pay them to continue to do that service and then you get more capital so you can continue to produce the good and the service so you can continue to put money back into the production of it just goes on for infinity so you can grow and make more and more every major industry in this entire world started off with one person doing one thing different than somebody else the only reason that McDonald's is every which way and was it Big Boy? I think it was Big Boy. Yeah. And the reason that Big Boy pretty much fell out and stopped existing in, I want to say, the 90s, really. I think there's a few in the world, but they're very far and few between, is all because Big Boy focused on being a diner restaurant that was quicker than average, and McDonald's created the fast food idea of creating an assembly line to make food similar to what you would do in a factory to make, like, an oven. That's the biggest difference. Did one thing different, and now there is a McDonald's on every major country in the world, including not-so-major countries. Yeah. There was a McDonald's in Moscow during the Soviet Union. <laughs> Were they loving it? I, I don't think that was the slogan. Is that, yet, <laughs> but that why the Soviet Union fell? Yeah, they, they got... Because they tasted the... Yeah, the good old American burgers. That's what it was. Um, but I, I super agree with that idea. Uh, capitalism is self-feeding, self-circulating. It produces... Cap it's, it's the idea that capital can produce more capital. You take the capital, you turn it into a commodity. That commodity enters the market, and it has created value when it's sold. That's exactly. more capital than began with. But where does that go? Some of it does go back into the factories, but most of it goes to create what we call wealth. Um, or this abstract surplus value. Um, so let's get beyond capitalism, because I guess that's the goal, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> to capitalist realism. Mark Fisher, uh, he wrote this 
the book. Um, it's it's only ninety pages long. Uh, it's pretty easy to read. It was published by Zero Books. Um, I believe two thousand nine, uh, maybe a little bit later than that. And it's basically you can sum up the whole beginning thesis of the book by the famous phrase: "It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, or like beyond capitalism." Um, and how that has become a pervasive way of thinking, um, I would say, since we've entered what we call like the neoliberal era, the post-Reagan, Margaret Thatcher. I mean, Margaret Thatcher, she said, uh, there simply is no other alternative. <laughs> you know, The idea that this is the best world that we have, or um, Francis Fukuyama wrote that book, The End of History. Like, here it is, the Soviet Union fell, fascism's no more, we don't have to worry about anything, we've arrived, here we are, it'll maybe get a little bit better here and there, we can improve a couple things, but we're basically at it, we should feel good, slap ourselves on the back, is uh, like we reached the end, yeah, the end of history, the, the point, as if we were being pulled towards 1995, um, that's what all of history was about, was getting Bill Clinton into the office. <laughs> I mean, if you want to know the public opinion of Margaret Thatcher, the, the most played song and the most requested song, The Day She Died, was Ding Dong, The Witch Is Dead. <laughs> wow. I'm, a, I'm not exaggerating. That was, there are numerous recordings of people calling in to English radio station and requesting to play Ding Dong, The Witch Is Dead. And they did. Wow. Because it's England. <laughs> also, to sidetrack for a second, the most popular song to play at a funeral is um, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life from the Life of Brian. Huh. Yeah. That's a good funeral song. <laughs> it is a great one. But yeah, no, Ding Dong the Witch is Dead, finally. Um, yeah, so we see... I, when I read the book, Capitalist Realism, um, I was the one that brought this subject uh, up um, to do a podcast. And when I read it, it really struck me for a number of reasons. And I went on to read some of Mark Fisher's other writings. Um, his stuff about mental health really struck me as well. Um, but I... That idea really stuck with me for a while, um, how pervasive capitalism is um, in in the media that we consume and, and the way that we talk about stuff uh, has, since we've been reading about this and talking about it and stuff amongst ourselves, have either of you noticed anything uh, while watching TV or even like you know YouTube videos where you're like, oh wow, I don't think I would have noticed this or thought about this quite the same uh, Isaac I'm sure maybe you've already thought about the <laughs> implications of capitalist realism and thought on mass media uh, but Kaysen did it strike you in any special ways? It really got me it, I mean it was really really strange I'm, st I'm still noticing things I, I notice things today um, when you bring up the subject of like socialism people are kind of like it and you have some people that are more left-leaning that are just like oh yeah it seems like an interesting concept or idea and we should be going to more towards that more equitability stuff like that and you see people more on the right they're just like it is the worst thing ever and it will destroy this country and then you you look at it from the standpoint that most people don't understand truly what a lot of other systems entail what socialism entails what communism entails and I didn't really fully understand what Andy says. When you guys brought it up, I was just like, oh, okay, you know, that's interesting. I'll, I'll look, some, look up some information and look into it. And then you actually start doing research. And 
you like look up communism and you'll find just like article after article about how it's like the worst thing ever. And then you actually get down to like actual scholarly scholarly analysis of it and you're just like, well, well, what was up with all that other stuff that said it's the worst thing ever? Like it just seems everyone has this idea about this thing being terrible without actually fully understanding what it is. Like I try to have conversations with people, just bring it up casually and then it's almost like, well, it's terrible because of this. And I'm just like, well, you realize that that's not really what it is. Well, what about this? That's not really what it is either. I'm like, well, how about you just go look it up and then come back to me and we can talk about it. No one's interested in actually investigating what those other systems are. They just know they're terrible. And that just kind of started the wheel spinning in my head about like, well, is it really terrible? Like, all the information that we've been given about this system says that it's really bad and you look at like and even the way that Russia's is characterized you look at the way that that um you know China is characterized and you're like well wait a minute those countries are dictatorships you know like it's less about the economic policy of the country than it is about you know these terrible forms of government that these people have to subjugate people and that's not something that a capitalist system is immune to because there's capitalist systems that also have dictatorships so is it the dictatorship that's bad or the economic policy that's bad? It you know? even, yeah, it, it seems to be that more and more common for capitalist uh, economies to be more authoritarian nowadays. Like, you're seeing it pop up more and more. Um, even, like, China, a very authoritarian country, has moved so far into the market economy. They're state managers of capital, like... I tend to agree with some of the Marxist critiques of the USSR, um, whereas it claiming that it's state capitalism, basically, like what what they implemented. Um, I tend to agree with a lot of those, uh, although I admire a lot of the experiments and projects done in the USSR, and I think it's very complicated to actually judge that. Yeah. But believing that a little bit, if you look at China nowadays, that's absolutely state capitalism. Like, that's right. the definition, and yeah, like, that seems to be the move uh, in a lot of countries. We saw it in a lot of South American countries in the 70s and 80s with, like, you know, Pinochet in Chile, um, usually supported by the CIA and American <laughs> uh, private companies, um, and this rise of capitalist and free market economies and whatnot. So yeah, that, that idea seems to really be breaking that freedom and capitalism are interlinked on some kind of intrinsic level nowadays, as if if you, this stupid, freer the markets, freer the people. <laughs> I, I think that you, like, you look at, um, like, the, just a lot of the countries in Africa, and you look at a lot of countries that are just in a terrible state right now. And, you know, no one ever looks at those countries and just like, it's because of capitalism. They look at those countries and are just like, their governments are completely corrupt and they're completely inept. And they are just, you know, there's a lot of economic issues that are going on. There's a lot of like, uh, you know, famine or, you know, like stuff like that. They don't ever blame you like, but Venezuela. And it's just like, there's a lot of failing countries right now that their people are just being like, you know, killed and they're dying and they don't have basic necessities. No one blames that on a capitalist system, even though most of them are absolutely capitalist. 
So, like, it just doesn't really make you have, like, the one example that I can think of off the top of my head. Maybe I just don't know that much about, like, you know, communistic or, you know, socialistic countries. But the one example that people hold up as look at how bad this country is doing happens to be one of the countries that is supposedly more socialistic, more communistic. But then you look at the top worst performing states, or like, uh, like states as in countries, on the planet, I, I think that all of them are capitalist. But no one ever brings those up as a failure of capitalism. Because McCarthy never died. <laughs> McCarthy never died. He just created sleeper cells that have lasted for the past 60 years. Over and over and over again, I hear the same arguments that I can hear McCarthy saying in old press conferences to try to get all of those damn communists like Trumbo out of the fucking Hollywood and all of those artistic things because you know all of those artists who happen to be communists or socialists they're all trying to make movies that intrinsically promote socialism and try to overthrow the government because that was a thing that happened <laughs> the only bit of lead they ever found was that there was a group of Trotskyists in New York or Chicago I can't remember which one who helped fund the Hollywood Pen is what they're referred to as who were the artists that were kicked out of Hollywood for legal fees. And the hypothetical possibility that it was the Trotskyists that were funding people like Dalton Trumbo in some small form, except everything I've read points more towards those Trotskyists in New York or Chicago giving money to unions, which happened to be worked by and people who were joined by those unions happened to be socialists and communists. And it wasn't that they were trying to promote some kind of uh, push towards overthrowing the government or anything. They just wanted people to like have good working conditions. And overall, the one thing I've noticed more than anything in this weird trying to deconstruct capitalism is a lot of conservatives, but specifically Republicans more so, have this weird idea that conservatism and capitalism is what this, the, the stemming of the harder you work, the more you earn. And that only being a capitalist thing. And also this weird idea that in any other economic system, oh, you're just going to be giving this, and it's just this. And I think the overarching issue is the reason that most people will look at a system and go, oh, it's failing because of its economic system on one case when it's something they disagree with, but then go, oh, well, it's the corruption of the government on this side is because they aren't willing to accept the intrinsic issues with that economic system. It's, not, it's, it's never the problem of capitalism that you have people starving in India or the fact that in the U.S. 40% of all food produced is thrown out. And most of that isn't food that you like made and then put in the fridge and then didn't eat and then threw out, a lot of that, I want to say it's like 25 or 30% of that, is just produce that just sits in a supermarket and is then thrown away. Yeah, but that's but not a you, failure of capitalism. So, yeah. If you give it away for free, then that will like destroy people's motivation to work for it. Oh, yeah, because that's, it, it's as if we've had a free market system ever in this country. <laughs> so there I, were 
sporadic cases in, at the creation of our country where women had some industrial power in the in the before the the uh, industrial revolution hit us. Except almost all of those cases were men who owned factories and then dying and then leaving it to the women because they didn't have any sons. So if we have such a free market and we've always had such a free market, how come there's always been such a high barrier to enter? Always. It started with women and black people and then became, well, black people, and then became, well, everyone can get in except for poor people. And that's where the issue comes in. If it's truly a free market and you can do anything, why is it that banks are so reluctant to give to these hard-working anybody because they're poor? Or because they don't have enough credit or enough capital to start their own business, even if they're extremely, extremely well-versed in business? Alright, so I have to talk about the food being thrown away. Um, I work in a grocery store, and it happens to be one of the very few grocery stores across the country that donate food. We, if something's about to go out of code or, you know, something happens anyways, the majority of the food that we would throw away, that most grocery stores would throw away, we donate. Uh, we donate thousands of dollars a week. Or, I'm sorry, thousands of dollars a day worth of food. And that's on a normal day, you know. There's sometimes, like, once our freezer broke and we had to get rid of everything. So we called uh, people and we donated, you know, like $10,000 worth of meat alone in that one day. Um, and we do stuff like that. And that's amazing. I really love it. Uh, but every once in a while, I'm struck with the fact that I work in one grocery store that, I mean, how many grocery stores are in our city, which is a relatively small city. About eight, I can think of. I would say eight, because I'm, I'm, I'm including... No, no, no. Physical stores. Physical stores. Oh, not, yeah, not, that's... Not companies. Physical stores, there's, uh... There's, Probably about 16, then. Because there's um, about three publics. There is... Yeah, there's a lot of grocery stores. There's You're not lot. just counting publics. There's five different counting... Walmarts, including the, the grocery store yeah. section that they have, that's... Dozens, like, it, dozens. It, it's just a grocery store. It doesn't have any yeah. of the other stuff that Walmart has. So for every thousands of dollars that we're donating a day, there are dozens of stores tossing thousands and thousands oh, of dollars. Oh, I'll say I will freely speak. When I worked for Sam's Club, we would throw away about, I, I want to say the average day, we would throw away about five full pizzas. Not like slices, which are still big whole pizzas worth of slices and when you go into the back and they're throwing out stuff I would see apples that had like maybe a bruise or two on them that I would definitely eat if it was in my kitchen that were being thrown away and not like one or two like the average household like a whole crate yeah yeah full yeah the of apples. I've, I've seen like I've heard about grocery stores where people they have locks on their trash cans oh a lot of them do oh, most, most of them, them. A vast majority of them do. What the actual hell? Well, it, it comes down to people like to have this idea that capitalism means efficiency, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Psychologically, it doesn't. They have proven time and time and time again that humans, when they go into a grocery store and they see an aisle that might have a couple of really good bits of produce on it, they will completely ignore because they assume those are the bad ones and everyone's picked through it already. 
So the psychology of the food market as we have in this capitalist system is fill up as much as you possibly can because the money you lose by throwing away food is like, I, I, I think the estimate goes from an eighth to a fifth of what you would lose to if you just only had like five apples in your crate that can hold 20. The thing that is kind of like troubling to me is this idea that we, we're the richest country in the world, and I'm pretty sure we're still the richest country in the world. Technically, yeah. There is no way that anybody should be starving. We no. throw out enough food to be able to not only feed ourselves, but feed people in other countries. But we do it because of this uh, sense of earning, you know, this food. Like, it's already there, you know, and we'd rather throw it out then give it to someone who might be having a hard time because they didn't earn it. Yeah. And anybody who might want to bring up the argument of, oh, well, there have been people that have sued for it. I've looked into that. I haven't found a single reported case of a major grocery store being sued for it. And from my understanding, there are numerous states that already have laws where if you donate food, technically speaking, the person who is receiving that food is accepting the risk that that food hypothetically may be harmful. Right. And I'll tell you right now, there are many, many people in just St. Pete, not even considering Tampa Bay, the whole Tampa Bay area, that would definitely rather have a stomach ache or possibly food poisoning for a day mm -hmm. than go hungry. It's one of those things where like, I, one in five I used kids, to, people, one in five kids. When I used to work for the city, um, like there's a lot of things where you'd like, you know, like, do a, uh, uh, like, a signature sheet or whatever for certain things that we did, you know, like, a, it's called a hold harmless. Um, if something happens, if we're doing an event and, you know, there's going to be a certain level of risk to what they're doing, we need to sign a sheet so that, you know, whatever. They could put up a sign, and I feel like that would be enough And on the from the legal aspect. And, and I'm not a lawyer, so I can't speak to that, but it just seems like it would make sense. Like, hey, take food at your own risk. Well, it, that's, that's what we do for so many other things. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I'm thinking. When we go to any kind of, when there's any kind of clothing donation, there's a possibility that some of that clothing might not have been treated properly or cleaned properly and therefore may still have lice or might have some bed bugs in it. But... Scabies. Yeah, generally... Pirates donate a lot of clothing. <laughs> yes. But generally, people who are poor will still take it because the risk of having lice or bed bugs is way, way under the radar in comparison to... To making sure that your children or yourself are clothed. Yeah. Every so, major industry already does that. Yeah, and this this inefficiency of capitalism is a core tenet of it. I don't think you can get around it uh, because you're producing food not to feed people, but you're producing food because it's a commodity that people will buy. So you have to overproduce. Yeah. Um, we could, I guess, you could say if everyone's allowed to dumpster dive food and like the unsold food becomes free then you've gotten around it but i don't really think that's fixing the problem at all um because you're still living in a system obviously where people need to eat food that's been thrown away and that you need to throw away food um so i want i, I did want to talk about the idea of capitalist realism in the media um so because, you know, I, I'm an artist, uh, and since we've been discussing this stuff, I've actually been making a lot of art uh, oh, for awesome. various shows, and 
trying to work, uh, keeping all this in mind, trying to work on some art that questions capitalism um, and hopefully pushes for some uh, different stuff eventually. I don't know if I'm quite there yet. Um, but so the idea of art um, has become a commodity. You know, expression itself has become like that. It's produced in capitalist terms. I wanted to read this quote um, from Capitalist Realism. So this is Mark Fisher talking about what it means to be an artist in capitalism uh, and how what it means to succeed as an artist. Uh, what, yeah, so the quote is, here, even success meant failure, since to succeed meant that you were only the new meat on which the system could be. Uh, and I think that, that really points to why it's so hard to artistically imagine beyond capitalism or to get beyond that genre of capitalist realism because as an artist you're rewarded for perpetuating capitalism mm -hmm. uh, in multiple ways. You know, you have to create stuff that's marketable, but also if you're creating stuff that's questioning the system that's getting you paid because you're creating art to sell it, you know, that's not going to work out very good for you. Um, I wrote down some notes. Uh, I'll read these. These are my rough notes um, just to see how y'all re react to this. These were my responses to that quote. Uh, this reflects how capitalism feeds on creative labor and the production of ideas and thought patterns. It seeks out the cool and consumes them to keep itself alive. Capitalism acts as a vampire. It sucks labor dry and keeps the creative around as pets, feeding when it needs, but only enough to give it the push that it needs. As the process goes on, the relationship develops parasitic qualities, where the artist and general intellect produce more and more to satisfy capitalism, both quantitatively and qualitatively. I mean, I'll say when it comes to art, a big point of that, I brought it up before, and I believe it was the first <coughs> podcast where we were talking about automation and stuff, but there was an art project that was thrown out that was like a hundred, like ar arguably worth a hundred thousand dollars, and it was literally a collection of trash. <coughs> yep. It was <laughs> empty cans and used food containers and stuff like that. Something that just happened two or three days ago, maybe a week ago now, where students had put a pineapple. Pineapple, I saw that. In a museum, I haven't seen that. They just put it there. Like they just left it there. They, they left it there, and people thought it was art. People thought that a single pineapple on a glass stand was art. Well, it was just a pineapple with no signature. No one knew what it was. There wasn't even like a card to signify that it was even part of the museum. All anybody saw was this is a museum. On a white table. This is a pineapple. It's on a table in a museum. It must be art. So it's taking Duchamp even further. It's not the uh, name God, of the I hate, artist. I hate Duchamp. <laughs> it's not the name of the artist that makes it art now. It's the setting or yeah. the uh, institution of power that the art structure has become. Because I, I hate the art world. Uh, and, well, I, I think a bigger point of that is a lot of people like to bring up when they talk about capitalist realism uh, the, the movies and TV shows that have flirted with the idea. And... I think a criticism I actually have of using Fight Club or something like that, spoiler alert, at the end of it, I mean, it's the first fucking scene of the goddamn movie, but 
you know, Tyler Durden and the narrator are going to blow up all of the major banks' records of debt, and right. it's going to go away. And that's what's going to be the step to getting rid of capitalism. Except they never, ever state that. Tyler flirts with the idea of getting rid of capital, but intrinsically talks about how his own little regime would be taking power again, how the middle class would rise up and do this and that, but never comes up with a plan for it. We have Nothing. no idea what the actual workingness of it is. Like uh, V for Vendetta. Yeah. All you do is get rid of debt. <laughs> Capitalism will still exist. They're not getting rid of capital. They're not getting rid of how much the dollar is worth. They're just getting rid of debt. Yeah. That's all they're doing. They're setting people's debt back to zero in order for people to have a slate clean and then try again and have another shot at life. Except that doesn't remove the fact that it's still going to be a 0.1% chance that you go from being extremely impoverished to just the upper middle class, not even wealthy, not even wealthy wealthy, just kind of wealthy. Yeah. It's a 0.1% chance. The, uh... Yeah, a lot of movies are like that. They can't imagine something beyond capitalism. Um, so, uh, Zero Books, um, the people that published Mark Fisher's book, have been producing videos lately. Uh, Douglas Lane is making them. And they did a couple on capitalist realism. It's probably the most famous book they've ever published. Um, and they're, I think they're really good. They touch on a number of that kind of stuff about films and popular imagination and so what are the ones they use uh, there's one about Hunger Games there's one about Black Mirror which is really good the Black Mirror one actually goes back to my point about being the meat on the which the system feeds like it's the episode 15 million credits, <laughs> merits. credits merits yeah it's, uh, it's a really good episode it man. is a good episode but it, it leaves you pretty sad or it left me sad the first time I watched because it. Because he becomes part of the system. Yeah. yeah. He commodifies himself. Uh, mm -hmm. And I guess that's a really sad reality because it's saying the only thing he could have done was kill himself on stage, <laughs> which arguably wouldn't have done much, uh, but it would have been authentic rather than giving in and then... But I think, I, I think that's the issue of having a, a false martyr to take the blame and start the revolution, so to speak. Right. It's the idea that... Oh well, if I do this, this will spark people starting actual change. So you have the very famous uh, image of the monk setting himself on fire. Yeah. So what did that do? I don't know. The uh, the food truck vendor in um, I'm blanking on the country uh, set himself on fire after being harassed uh, by the police, and that started the Arab Spring. I mean, yeah, but that's one case versus one case. Oh, I know, what I about, know. I mean, we have the very famous image of the the unknown man standing in front of those tanks. Yeah. They didn't stop those tanks, by the way. They continued. They tried to avoid it, and it was the soldiers who recognized, we don't want to have to run this person over. It doesn't stop the fact that, is it Tiananmen Square? Yeah, yeah. Still had open fire. Right. It doesn't stop the fact that, yeah, you had protesters in the Vietnam War, and on May 4th, 1970, Kent State, four people were shot and killed. I think more people were shot, but four people died that day yeah. protesting something. 
Yeah. Did it stop the Vietnam War? Because from what I remember, the Vietnam War continued on. It did, yeah. You, you have this false narrative, not even in a capitalist system, but just in the systems that we have become accustomed to, that you're going to have a big event that causes someone to die for their cause, and that's going to spark all these people who are waiting in the shadows, who might agree with the idea, but don't think it's important enough yet, who, who will all come out of the woodwork, and then we're all going to come together, and we're going to overthrow this corrupt system we have. And that's, that's usually done in, in movies, and it has a very libertarian, anti-collectivist lean. Yeah. It's like the average good old boy say, oh, standing yeah. up you know, a, to a corrupt government official. Or Well, I think that the, the problem that you have with that is this idea that, like, I, I always feel as though the systems that we have nowadays, that we've... we've um, kind of come become used to have I'm not saying that they have like their own but wh whoever kind of like you know whoever groups are you know all the pieces that work together to kind of push things forward have figured out enough that if you push people just enough just enough that they're not too uncomfortable there's no need to ever there's no need for people to ever like really like you know rise up like you know even generally the the most of the people in this country even though we you know we, we had, you know, the you know, the recent election and, you know, a lot of people getting angry. How much of that ever drove forth to anything else? You know, like, how much of that ever caused the revolution? Yeah. We are, people are uncomfortable, but the vast majority of them aren't starving in the street. The vast majority of them aren't, you know, to the point where it's that bad. And I think that the systems that we've created in this country have developed to the point where you just keep people at the edge. People will just, you, you, you know, you, you might not have the greatest job, you might not have any health care, but you have a job, yeah. you're okay, you're, you have enough to, like, you know, put food on the table, you have enough to, you know, you might never be able to go on a vacation, you might not be able to take care of any major things that come up, but you're okay. Well, I think that Except for minority communities that are terrorized, but minority then when they reacted, they're seen as... The problem that you have Ridiculous with minority communities is that when stuff. you have been down for so long, being down doesn't seem so bad. Oh, yeah. You know, like, you just I, get used to it. I just, I, I, I think there's a very interesting thing that happens on Kendrick Lamar's uh, album, Damn, where there's two different, the first two songs he uh, directly references two times that Fox News used his... Some of his lyrics from *Tim a Butterfly* as a means to talk about people being against police and all of that, and one of those things involves him saying, "And we hate Popo, want to kill us dead in the street, faux show." And the rest of the song is just talking about this idea, which they completely miss, about how yeah, all this police brutality thing is going on, but we're gonna be all right. <laughs> We're gonna be all right. We're gonna be all right. That's the song. And then you have Gerardo, which is directly called out on the album. Who also Geraldo? misses the point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I, Gerardo. I fucking, fucking hated that. Yeah, he, he's the worst. And an issue I have with his statement is he says that hip hop has done more harm to the black <laughs> community than racism ever. I love had. that. I love that. And I'm starting to think about okay, Hilarious. how many people in the ghettos, so to speak, listened to Tupac and Biggie talking about drug dealing and decided, 
I never thought about drug dealing because of my, my economic situation, but now that I'm being told that I should be a drug dealer, I'm going to go be a drug dealer now. Is it not that... See, that's why I started drug dealing. It's yeah. <laughs> but, that's, but that's my point, is there's this weird thing where art goes far enough to critique the system, but not enough to propose a solution. Yeah. And I, there's I'd a great that. thing that's missed in the most recent Rick and Morty episode, uh, the, the sneak peek they had on um, April Fool's Day, where there's this big plan that Rick's going to do to completely destroy the government. And both Morty and um, Summer, Summer just have these like crazy ideas like launching nukes and targeting all this different stuff back and forth. And then Rick essentially says, that's a great idea, but no. And then simply changes the fiat currency from being worth one of itself to being worth zero of itself. And it completely collapses the government because the government is entirely run by money. And it's a great criticism, but people stop there and forget about something that happens immediately after that. Once Rick gets back to the house and after a bunch of other shit happens, Summer walks into the garage and goes, Oh, they're quartering aliens in the courtyard at the school and it technically counts as patriotism. Wow. And people forget about that line. It's, it's really, really important because it, it, it shows the cynicism that Rick and Morty so perfectly explains about how art will go far enough to critique the system falling, not propose a solution to it, and then neglect the fact that you're probably going to have a shitty system that pops up after, after it as a reactionary movement to whatever oppression they face, which just oppresses somebody else. So, yes, uh, that that is true. I mean, yep. Walter Benheim, I believe it was him who said, uh, every fascist uprising is a sign of a failed revolution. Yep. Uh, when, when the left doesn't deliver, fascism comes in to take its place. Uh, I do want to say one thing, though. I think that it's true maybe art has only critiqued and hasn't offered a solution but I think it's art art is instrumental in creating a new world um, so I was listening to a podcast the other day with a guy named Mike Watson he wrote a book the called Watson. Towards a Conceptual <laughs> Militancy I haven't read it. it the podcast made me want to listen to it um, and I'm paraphrasing him but he said something along the lines of and he may have been quoting someone uh if you take away the army, a constitution becomes just a poem. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, so you thinking about that is we need poets. We need people that can envision, that can create radically new ideas. Uh, so I guess this leads where I want to bring the topic where I guess this has to lead to is since that book, uh, Capitalist Realism and all that, it's things have changed. Um, I truly believe we are in the beginning stages of the spell breaking. Like capitalist realism doesn't seem so true anymore. Like with you know the Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, um, uh, Jean Luc Mélenchon. Um, you know all of these people gaining popularity, uh, mass popularity. It seems viable to reimagine something. And I'm not saying those people, um, maybe Melanchon out of all of them would be the most radical, but these, those people aren't like extremely radical. You know, they're not communists, they're not uh, revolutionaries by any means, but they're challenging some core concepts and opening up that idea that maybe 
some form of socialism or something is different. Um, so I wanted to ask if y'all believed that that spell was breaking as well, like I do. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, yeah, how important do you think art can be in breaking that spell, uh, in proposing something new rather than critiquing? Um, and I want to talk about how important maybe memes have been in breaking that spell as a new form of art, internet memes, rather than all-encompassing memes. Well, I, I think I have slightly more to say about this than Kason or you, simply because I've talked with you guys about the project I started a year ago. And I believe it was either today or yesterday on Facebook I saw a memory. And it was one of the first full communist memes I posted on my Facebook and ever since, I started using my Facebook instead of... Cause I, I try to engage with people on political issues. And some of them, I had really good discussions on. A lot of them I did. But there was always this distance of my ideals and being put forth as, well, you're a communist, so you must agree with X, or you must agree with Y, so I'm going to base my argument on X or Y without asking you or considering if you disagree with X or Y. And when it came to me, political discourse or trying to find a solution to capitalism, because I have never claimed that communism has been the perfect system and would solve everything. I don't think it would. I honestly believe that we have reached a point where it doesn't matter what system we have, what matters, or economic system we have, what we need is a governmental system or a lack thereof of a governmental system that will be a fair, balanced identity for all people to feel represented, regardless of their race, regardless of their sexuality, regardless of their gender. I don't give a shit. As long as you feel represented, that's what I feel matters. And even if you do feel represented right now, and you feel like we're going a little bit too far, what we need to do is focus on something. And when it comes to using memes to combat that, I can personally think of three people who have come up to me in the past year, ever since I turned my Facebook into a place of communist memes, from all these different pages, talking about it and looking at it from different criticisms, some of which I don't honestly agree with. Right. Some of which I'm just pointing out there to see if, what it's going to do. I can think of three people who have come up to me and go, gone, you know, I actually read some of Marx's stuff, and I don't agree with him, but yeah, you kept on posting those memes, and I wanted to know what the reference was. <laughs> and it proved to me that people don't get engaged always through this, as, as Marx and Engels constantly did, which I think was a mistake, but also it was the 1800s, you can get away with that, keeping it very, very academic. Right. Socialism and communism at its core, a lot of the things they talked about are rather academic. Yep. And so is capitalism, but a lot of the, the things we understand about capitalism and the things we see that capitalism gives us are so easy for the quote-unquote common man to understand and well, see it's and because get they're so naturalized. Of. Yeah, it's because it's a tradition now. While with socialism and communism, you need to have an historical backing of the situation, you need to have an economic backing of the situation, you need to have a sociological backing of the situation to fully grasp what happened because you weren't there. Because you've always been in a capitalist system. It's the uh, that's an idea I was talking about earlier. Is uh, path dependency. Um, uh, I'm not sure if it's necessarily an economic um, idea, but there's all these things that we do now are built on the things that were done in the past. 
even though we have more efficient ways to do them, it's hard to go back and change the original idea. So we have these things that like, for example, why we drive on certain sides of the road. And they were, you know, we started doing them in ancient times and things just kind of started following that same path. And now it's really hard to go back and just switch things over to a more efficient way because that path is already worn. Um, so I think that has more to do with like habit forming and, and path dependency than anything else. Most people in, you know, uh, that are alive now, a lot of people that I taught, no one that I know was around, you know, during the, the big battle between, you know, for the soul of America with communism. And most people don't remember that time. And we ha are so far removed from it that it's hard to imagine, you know, anything else outside of the systems we've grown up with. So we are on that path and we've grown up with that path. And it's really hard to get off of that path because other things are built upon it. So um, I think that it, it's going to be really hard to kind of go in a different way. I think that the reason why, um, why socialism and things like that, Bernie Sanders and, and those ideas have become more popular is because it's kind of, um, it's kind of placed as an amendment to capitalism. It's, this system is great, but we can fix it. Or this system is great, but we can make it better. Yeah, so it's not it's not coming on as like we're gonna we're gonna come we're gonna create a new system. It's like we're gonna make this system work a little bit better. And right. I think that's easier for people to swallow. I, I think the issue with that comes down to people when you talk about socialism or communism or just anything that isn't capitalism. Really, they have this issue of understanding that the capitalism we have now at least in America, as, as well as in England and in a lot of other countries. It's a global system. I mean, it is a global system, but I mean, like, the nuances of the different okay. systems. Yeah, yeah. Those have been developed and evolved, and they've borrowed from this system and that system, and there have been revision after revision after revision after revision to get to the point we are now, where we have a system that pretty much works. Yeah. It has taken us hundreds of years since the writing of The Wealth of Nations to get to the capitalism we have today, to get to the system of convenience that we understand capitalism is today. If you really look and want to understand what capitalism is, go through and look at advertisements for products from the 1920s through the Great Depression, going into the 60s, through the 70s and 80s, and going into the 90s and you will see a very distinct change in how things were marketed towards and what happened. Specifically with how nearly every product from the 1940s into the 1970s was marketed as, this will make things easier. This is more convenient. And while we still keep that sentiment in the capitalism we have now, where we have all of these products that are like, as seen on TV, and they're super cheap and they make things really easy and better for us, still, to this day are based on convenience and quote-unquote efficiency. And the only thing I'll say is there's a quote from Lenin that specifically says, democracy for an insignificant minority, democracy for the rich, that is the democracy of capitalist society. And the only reason I think that still holds true literally a hundred years after he uttered those words is because we have been so focused on this party divide or just political divide of the left and the right, we forget that neoconservatism and neoliberalism are like 
one, maybe two percentage points away from being the same damn system that still benefits the richest section of our population, except the only time that people yell about it is when it's the other one doing it. So, I had more I wanted to talk about, but we're running up on our time, so I think we should draw it close. Um, maybe we'll do another episode. I'm sure this theme will come up over and over again. Yeah, we'll probably do part two, maybe, or yeah. you know, come up later. Yeah, I specifically wanted to talk about envisioning ways out and rise in utopian thinking, but you know, that really could be its own episode or the start of something else. Um, so, like most, you know, investigations into capitalism, we have barely scratched the surface. Uh... And proposed no solutions. <laughs> and proposed no solutions as of yet. Yeah. Though I want to stick to that idea that art has a primary role to play. So engage us with this. Uh, write us some Facebook stuff. Um, write us some stuff critiquing some things that you maybe thought you enjoyed or stuff from your childhood and hidden messages of capitalist logic that you have found within them. Or send us some examples of media that you think go beyond that. Um, that you think don't fall prey to this logic. Um. I think I would encourage people, one of the things that I found with my own investigation is actually go and look at the two systems as to what they are defined as. Look at look at capitalism in a purely um, um, scholarly or uh, purely um, academic sense. Look at socialism in a purely academic sense and look at cap uh, uh, communism in a purely academic sense. Understand what those systems are. And I think that you'll gain some insight into actually doing some research into what the systems are supposed to be as opposed to what you're, you're told they are. If I will suggest anything to understand both capitalism, socialism, whatever, go read The Wealth of Nations, which is what we understand capitalism coming from, and then go through and compare that to what we have now, and then go and read the manifesto. They're both fairly short books that both outline the base of what we understand to be both systems, because socialism does stem from Marxism. It's just a little bit more to the left and less, and more into the facet of government control than what communism, as Marx defined it, was supposed to be. So go read both of those, compare them to what you understand, and you'll probably have a larger grasp of the situation. Until next time, we're across the aisle. I'm Adam. I'm Zach. And I'm Casey.